in a couple of minutes, I'm going to talk to Adrian Ferruccia, jazz musician, jazz pianist. And uh, I want to play something first so that you know who you're listening to. Uh, this is the title track from his album, Blued Dharma, in duo with Joel Fromm, Adrian Ferruccia on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Thank you. 
Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, a show where we look at things and people through a spiritual lens. It's interesting. I, I have spiritual guidance or companionship uh, clients that I work with. Uh, and, and this week, I've, I've been rather busy that way. Um, and it brings up a lot of wonderful feelings. And, you know, somebody asked me, what's the difference spirit, religion, you know, which one's which? And uh, I, I always say that spirit is about relationship to yourself, to other people, and to the world around you, and to the universe, to the unknowable. Uh, it, it's making some room in yourself for the fact that you're not going to know everything and you can't. It just doesn't work that way. And that's okay. You can bend a knee to it and access it. Creativity is a big part of that as well. I'm going to, before I introduce my guest today, it's been a bit of a hard week because uh, a friend of mine, I found out yesterday morning, uh, passed away. And we had, over the last year or, or so, he'd had a really aggressive form of cancer. Uh, and there were times where he was in the hospital and it was just, you know, he didn't even know where he was and didn't know what he was going through. And then he came out of that and luckily got to spend a good deal of time with his partner out in the country, uh, just being. Uh, but I'd call every once in a while and we talk. And our last conversation was a week ago. And he was, he and I were talking about politics and, you know, the world of politics and how it moves. And he was interested in my point of view because it was a little different than his. And we were having a lovely conversation. And I just thought, you know, you're alive to the moment you're not alive anymore. Like he was just in the middle of things, as it were, even though he knew, he knew perfectly well that a tumor had formed on his heart, that it, there was one on his knee, that it was spreading. But he, he, he wrote a song, he put it on Facebook, he'd always play the guitar, he loved to play the guitar and he'd play all night. His sister, he inspired her to, to become a musical actress and uh, a really good one. But you know, when I often when I hear of someone dying, I, I find myself going towards the part where I think, well, you know, the fact that I love them and other people love them and that they loved back, that's a life and that's great. But this time I was told, I was talking to my wife about something completely different. And and then I looked down at my phone as she was getting ready to, to leave. And I saw an email from his sister and I thought, oh, what? And I pressed it. You know, I'm, I'm very sad to inform everyone that, you know, Ronnie passed away. Uh, yesterday evening, you know, he'd only spent three days in a hospice and I didn't even know he'd gone in. And I just burst into tears, you know, and I realized I was crying for a lot of things. I was crying for my friend. I was crying for being in the middle of a conversation with him, as it were. I was crying for this pandemic and how it just squeezes us so tight. And just the sadness that sometimes for no good reason or bad reason, we have to die. And it makes me really feel that peace about life. That's, this is not a rehearsal. You know, I, rem I remember listening to um, Will the Circle Be Unbroken 2 by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And they, one, one thing that came out was that they were really trying to capture the living room again in the music that everything had become studio perfect. 
and they just wanted to capture the sound of them playing together. So there's a song by uh, John Denver on it called And So It Goes, beautiful song. Uh, and they're getting ready to start and click tracks going and the guitars are coming. And uh, somebody says, uh, this one practice? And Denver says, they're all practice. Because that's the flow. We're always on and we're always not on. We always have to be available to both those things. But a year, I guess it's more than a year, maybe two years ago, I went to see uh, um, some people playing music, some jazz here in Hamilton, the Artwood Art Bar. And um, it was a bass player who was releasing an album. Right now, I can't remember his name, but it was good. He's actually from Hamilton originally, but it was really good. And he said, and on keyboards uh, today is Adrian Ferrugia. And I'd always heard of Adrian. I, I'd never met him, uh, but I got to watch him play. And I thought, oh, that's what the fuss is about. Because it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. And I could tell that it was about being present. It wasn't about being performative. It wasn't like, you want to see what I can do? It was, this goes through me. I'm just, I'm along for the ride. That's what I got from it. And it was a beautiful creative experience. So we both happen to live in the same city and yet, and around the corner apparently, but we never get to see each other. So I asked him to be on the show so we could have a chat and uh, he joins me now. Adrian Ferrucia, hello and welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Thank you, Ralph. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. We get to today. So, I'm open, so open to wherever it goes. You see, that's that's jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me something about that with jazz, because, you know, even if you know you've got a, a lead break coming up, you can make a choice to play the, the thing you know you do, or you can go, I'm just going to let this happen. How do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, well, I think for me, it's it's. It's about having the courage to let the magic happen. I mean, it, there's always there's always the promise of something magical happening when there's openness. Um, so, you know, I think back to sort of my roots as a musician. I started off as a as a classical pianist and, and studied it very seriously and um, you know, that process was so much about refining and distilling a performance down to um, a very specific musical statement, you know, not to say that there isn't spontaneity in that world, but just the process itself was so much about working on a piece, mastering the skills, mastering the sound, um, developing a relationship to the notes and getting deep into an interpretive thing and then you know, finding that sort of final perfect rendition. Whereas with jazz, it's almost the opposite. You know, you, you accumulate skills, you accumulate techniques, um, you learn the piece, and then you go on stage and you try to forget everything you know <laughs> with the hope that there's going to be this moment of, of magical inspiration that, that's going to happen. So it's really about listening, um, listening to what's out there, 
sort of trying to speak to you through the piece of music and, and, and hoping that there's enough presence and enough clarity in that moment to sort of, you know, be the receiver of, of what wants to come in musically. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I play hand drums badly. Uh, I don't have technique, but I do have some rhythm, but I, I play them uh, sometimes at the spiritual gatherings. Uh, and every time I stop listening and stop trying to do something and start trying to do something, I screw it up. I, I lose the rhythm, I lose the timing, I lose everything because I'm not there anymore. And yeah. th that that is... It's a tough place to be he, at the the present moment is a tough place to be, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always sort of looked at performing this music as sort of some sort of high level meditation, you know, because it's so much about mindset and headspace and and being fully there, um, you know. And it's it's so easy to it's so easy for that to get disrupted in so many different ways, you know. One story I love to tell my students just about how important your your state of mind is, is. You know, I remember a number of years ago playing at the late night jam session during the Toronto Jazz Festival. But that the Rex Hotel in Toronto was playing in the house trio, and we're just having a particularly particularly good night where the music's blowing and we're all really feeling the energy, and the audience is feeling the energy, and it felt great. And then all of a sudden, over my right shoulder, I see. Um, several jazz luminaries from New York come into the club. Um, Christian McBride, the bassist, and um, piano player Benny Green, and you know these are heroes of mine. And and I could just feel in that moment my space just kind of closed in around me. <laughs> that that was my ego jumping and going, "You better play good now," you know. So suddenly there are all these conditions. And, and, and I could really feel like the, that sort of loss of freedom in the moment, you know? So I just feel like with this music in particular, there's, there's a real need to master oneself on the same level as mastering, you know, the, the techniques and the material and the repertoire. For it. How, did, how did you play for the rest of the night? Were you, what would you say? Well, I kind of slowly eased back into a more relaxed <laughs> Realized they were more interested in the conversation they were having at the back. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it, it was interesting to feel such a tangible shift in my space just from from that you know, stimulus coming in. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the in the, the world of prayer, for instance, in, in religious life, um, it's kind of like when you go dancing, you got to dance as if nobody's looking, right? Right. But it's really hard to do sometimes because they're probably looking yeah. and you're thinking I'm being judged. And then that can trigger all kinds of, you know, grade three feelings in you about not being good enough. Yeah. Absolutely. You got to find a way, I guess. Right. I mean, you got to find a, how do you, if you, you know, when you're in the zone, but how, what do you do to get to the zone? Or do you have, anything that happens for you to get you into a zone where you you can be free yeah i have a few tricks um maybe tricks actually belittles the process he's calling them tricks but um i think a big part of it for me has been um to really learn and practice 
um, allowing and embracing what's ever in my space rather than resisting. So, you know, um, when I was a younger musician, you know, and if I got up on stage and I suddenly felt this real rush of nervousness, um, you know, it was, it was as if that nervousness was a problem that needed to be dealt with. Um, so there would be this fixation on it. You know, sometimes I'd even like, you know, grab a glass of wine or a beer to kind of numb it or, um, or try to distract from it or try to hide it. Right. Um, and I'm finding for me, um, now feeling those feelings and just allowing them and acknowledging them sort of almost in a, in a, in a way surrendering to them. Um, it kind of renders them sort of irrelevant and, but at the same time, it sort of uses them as fuel for the performance. So I think, you know, embracing a wider range of experiences as being a valid part of performance rather right. than that younger minded idea is like, I have to feel confident and excited and inspired at all times in order to play. But, you know, we're multifaceted beings, right? So some days it's, you know, disillusioned and a little bit nervous is what's going to make a great performance or, um, you know, possibly angry. <laughs> Anger can be a power, but using it all as fuel. Um, something on a more practical note is I often remind myself, like, let go of the need to sound good and just play. So, that takes courage. Yeah. And I suppose that's letting go of expectations, right? Like rather than holding myself to these expectations, just going, Hey, I'm just going to play and I'm going to let it happen the way it happens. Um, so don't, don't, don't try to sound good. You know, when Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock get on stage, they're not trying to sound good. They, they just, they know they can play and they're just playing. So. And that comes with experience and maturity and moving away from the ego self to the true self. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's been hard earned for me, but I've worked at it for years and I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, as, as the years go by, getting more comfortable just in my own skin as a musician and feeling confident to just sit, sit down and do what I do and trust that it'll be. I always remember that John McLaughlin uh, put out an album called Love, Devotion, Surrender. And I thought, right, you got to love it. You got to devote yourself to it. And then you got to surrender to it. It, it. It's spiritual practice. I mean, there's no difference. Absolutely. Crazy, Absolutely. isn't it? It's crazy. My guest is Adrian Ferugia, and this is not that kind of rabbi. By the way, we're brought to you by Kaplansky's. Kaplansky's Deli, my friends. He's my sponsor. Go to Terminal 3 if you ever travel again, if any of us ever travel again. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I still go there. Mm -hmm. I get myself a good salad. I get myself, you know, a nice soup. And uh, I just relax into the environment because Kaplansky's is an experience that you, you want to have. It's a lot of fun. If you do happen to eat meat, the smoked meat, fantastic. I get on the best authorities that it's just fantastic. Um, you can go to kaplanskys.com. Uh, He's got, um, I've got them downstairs, actually, um, packets of four different mustards that you can get to sample different ones. And you can also give you um, a t-shirt, which I have, mine says kicking it old shul. Shul is the Yiddish word for synagogue. So kicking it old shul works. So uh, Kaplansky's Deli, thank you to Zane for 
being our sponsor. All right, back to our conversation. Did you grow up uh, in a religious house, a non-religious house? How did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a Catholic house. Um, I went to Catholic school. Um, my parents were sort of the kinds of parents that brought us to church because they thought that's what parents were supposed to <laughs> kids back then. Um, interestingly, I, I think my parents kind of abandoned going to church before I did. And then around the age of 16, I started to kind of fall, fall a little disillusioned with organized religion and um, kind of left. And I think since then, over the years, I've become what I consider to be an extremely spiritual person, but I, I, I don't subscribe to any sort of religious religious practice. Um, so what cut the cord for you? What By 15, 16, was it just, this just doesn't make sense, or was it something deeper than that? Yeah, I just, I started to feel like it just didn't have an impact. Um, I, I just felt like it seemed, um, for me, like sort of a lot of ritualism and um, not a lot of impact. I, I wasn't feeling spiritually activated by by being a part of that organization, I guess we could call it. Um, so yeah, it really was just kind of a sense of like, this isn't really feeling like it's serving a valuable purpose. Um, I, I think I, as I started to maybe explore some of my own path spiritually. I remember we, reading a couple books at that time by like Wayne Dyer and even Deepak Chopra and, you know, um, starting to feel a little bit like maybe this idea of guilt and sin. And I don't know if the Catholic church still believes in hell as an idea, but I, those things just started to not really make sense sense to me inside of the scope of a, of a loving God who created us in, in his own image. And um, yeah, it really just kind of, it just kind of lost its appeal ideologically for me. So I think that was the beginnings of going, I want to find my own path. I want to find my own path through this. I do believe very much in the idea that there's more to it than just our meat bag and our thinking <laughs> behind all that. I, I've always known that. Um, but I, I just wanted to define it for myself in a way that was meaningful through for me. So how did you build that? How, how have you created your own spiritual life? Because you're not alone. There's a lot of people who are spiritual, but not religious. It's a whole group, right? Well, I think it just, it, it started to become about searching, right? Wanting to sort of define it, define it for myself. And so being, you know, drawn to certain authors, um, certain practices. I mean, many of the Buddhist practices really make a lot of sense. The idea of silent contemplation and, and having a, sort of this idea that there's, you know, we have this, this very active thinking mind that's sort of been programmed by the world we live in from the time we were very young, but then behind all of that being this sort of consciousness that just sort of observes and witnesses it all and wanting to get to know like who you know who's the man behind the curtain so to speak like wanting to 
start to really understand what this is all about, this almost sort of duality within us, this idea that there's this identity that we've created over time with thoughts and ideas that came to us from our parents, our teachers, you know, billboards, kids at school, teachers, and we formed this sort of identity in this worldview that's both, you know, in many ways designed to empower us, but also designed to greatly disempower us. Um, and then thinking about this idea that there's this sort of higher self within us that that that's the consciousness that was there from the very beginning before language even came into the picture and, and wanting to find out what that's all about and so yeah it's been it's been a long journey and it continues to be a very important journey for me the idea of um, aligning with aligning with my my true self my inner being my my where 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 wisdom and and truth reside you know mm -hmm. yeah i do know and uh you are articulating you know so much of um i i just had a uh, one of my clients was just like i just want to know the difference between spirituality and religion and I could have actually just given him what you said about spirituality, but within that, even within that journey, there's the idea of the ego and the eco, right? The ego system where you got to be at the top of the pyramid and everything has to feed you and the ecosystem where you're just part of a whole bunch of relationships that are happening at all times and are available to us at all times, right? So how does that, search for true self go from duality from there's this stuff outside and then there's me there's god or jesus or mary but then there's me and i am part of everything there is no me to speak of it's just part of everything how, how do you how does that come through your fingertips when you're hitting a piano right yeah well i think for me um the biggest part of the picture is when I'm playing the piano, I am continually trying to disappear myself, essentially. Um, so it's really about focusing my own consciousness on the notes and the sounds around me. And very willfully, um, I mean, less willfully as time goes on, luckily, but very willfully trying to literally ignore the thoughts in my head, like the, the, the literal practice of not being distracted by thoughts. So, you know, I'm at the piano. There is this great and powerful force in the universe called music, and it's swirling around through the cosmos. And, and we are these, these little these little antennas that have the capacity to sort of link up to that and channel it through us. And it goes through me and my unique set of experiences and my, and, and it's going to come out of me. And inside of that, I've also got this chattering ego that's going, you better play something hip so that they don't think you're, and, and just play something faster and, you know, and don't let that trumpet player show you up, you know, and trying to like shut that voice out completely and, and listen to the cosmos and and allow that allow that to come through um and you know my job as a musician is to 
you know, keep the instrument well honed, um, you know, so that I can be a good receiver of, of that music. Um, I, I really truly do believe that music is possibly the most powerful form of communication we have here among us humans. It, it's, it's wordless, but it's, 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 it's energetic. And, and, um, you know, I've always, I shouldn't say always, but I'd say what's become my sort of most real belief is that, you know, when I'm trying to communicate with others through music, they're not, they're not really hearing what I'm playing. They're hearing who I'm being. So it's about getting centered in a space. Like, what do I want to, what do I really want to create right now? Do I want to create the joy of expression? Do I want to create love? Do I want to create excitement? And it's, it's more about the energy that's putting, being put into the notes than the notes themselves. Um, so where, yeah. do you, where do you put the darkness? Where do you put the, the sadness or the darkness? And because, you know, people like to talk about how music makes makes you feel great. Yeah. But I, I access music sometimes to let my heart break. Yeah. Um, I, sometimes the sadness is, is, is one of the most powerful energetic conveyances for the music, you know? Um, I think, I think for me, it's actually about being honest about where I'm at when I play. Um, so, you know, I like to create an intention sometimes for, you know, why I'm playing, but sometimes the best intention is just to say, I'm just being in there and I'm letting that come out through the music, however it wants. Um, and if it's, if it's sadness, um, if it's grief, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that if I'm in a space where I'm really sad and I'm playing music, that that, that, that energy that's going into those notes is potentially going to be heard by somebody who is essentially looking for permission to feel that within themselves. And it's kind of like, the idea that like vibrations attract so right. you know i mean the only thing worse than feeling sadness is resisting and repressing sadness right you know I mean, it's that thing where you're feeling this horrible feeling all day until you have a good cry that's the expression of the sadness right so so if the music has the power to to, to allow that energy out of someone else that that's that's a gift and yeah no, it is. I, I was thinking when you were talking about that music is a universal piece, I was thinking of the uh, whirling dervishes in the Sufi tradition. So having seen them in, in Turkey at one point, uh, you know, my wife and I were sitting there and the first thing you think is, how do they not tip over? Mm -hmm. how, how, how many times can you turn at this velocity and not tip over? I couldn't believe it. But then I noticed their hands and one hand faces up towards the sky, towards, towards the heavens and the cosmos. And the other hand on the other side of them faces down. Mm -hmm. So I receive as a ground, right? Yeah. And in being that ground, I, I, 
I have to, to do that, I have to completely move from the rational mind to the heart place, to the true self place, to the divine spark, right? That religion tries to give us rituals for mm -hmm. and can occasionally be successful in that. I mean, to listen to the Gregorian scale at a Russian Orthodox funeral, you know, 10 people behind a scrim singing and, and you you just fall into it, you just flow into it. You're just there because that is the articulation of grief. Yeah. You know, um, I always thought to myself, though, I mean, if that's the only thing they're allowed to do, they <laughs> can't do the joy either. They're just the, the funeral dirge people, you know, yeah. and, and that in and of itself is something. But you have to you have to have an architecture to this too. You can't just be available. You have to have all that technique that was brought into your life, all that classical skill, that ability to, to do notation in your head, to go, I'm gonna do a chord transition here because we seem to be moving into this other part. And Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There, there are definitely a, you know, a number of skill sets that have to be developed. Just like, you know, just like those whirling dervishes, they, they have to have a certain certain amount of physical fortitude, they have to have a learned set of movements that have been mastered in order to completely let go inside of the experience, you know. Um, you know, I, I'd say my first great love is performing music for people who are willing to listen. Um, but my second great love is teaching. And, you know, I work with students at Mohawk College and at Humber College and a bunch of private students. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to emphasize with my students is like all this talk about self-expression and being free and, and channeling the vast music of the universe is great, but you got to remember, like, you, you've got to do the work to, to, to support being the carrier of that. You know, if you don't have a developed set of ears, how are you going to recognize what you're hearing and be able to translate it to your instrument in a nanosecond. If you don't have the technical dexterity to execute ideas on your instrument, there's going to be, those things will stop the flow of the process. So it's, it's our job to, you know, hone the craft so that we're able to facilitate that, that, that flow or being in the zone, as you called it, you know? Well, I often say to people, uh, spirituality is a relationship issue, but religion is a fitness program right? I mean, mass is mass. And if, if you're following it, you show up for mass. Confession is confession. You know, um, all these different rituals are part of building spiritual muscles for people, right? So without them, you it's like saying, well, I'm spiritual. And I had a really nice walk on the Shadok Trail. Okay, well, you had a really nice walk on the Shadok Trail, and you may have actually felt re-energized and connected, but can you replicate that? You know, it's like when, when we were 20, and I used to do hallucinogens with my friends, you know, you do acid, and you'd hang out or do mushrooms, and I really got the cosmic joke. Like, I was in on it. I realized we were just on a dirt ball in the universe, and we were just molecules in the body of it all, and hey, I get it. This is hilarious. The oneness of everything. Uh, but then the next morning, I'd wake up feeling like crap. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back to it. I got a set to do, a, you know, okay. first first show and, you know, I can't remember my act, so I hope I can get this right and be funny and, you know, you just lose it all again. So then it, it really became, you know, when I, when I was a young guy, I did stand up and stand up was about craft. You know, you can think you're funny all you want, but if you don't know the difference between 17 is funnier than 11, then you got a problem. 17 is funnier than 11. It's got the right amount of syllables and it's about rhythm. Mm. If you cut the joke short with an 11, it's got no kick word in it. It's not the difference between being slapped in the face with a goldfish or slapped in the face with a carp. Carp is a kick word. It's funny, right? It's like playing a D when you should have been playing an E. Right? You got you got to know what you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think it's finding the balance, right? I mean, um, you know, I've known I've known some musicians who have put such a focus on the craft mm. that they've become such incredible technical masters. And you can hear it though. You can hear the technician. And at the same time, if it's not backed by that substance, then, you know, often those musicians end up feeling frustrated. You know, they'll, they'll be on stage with a musician who's maybe a lesser technician and they're wondering, why is the audience responding more enthusiastic to that guy than me? Right. And, and, and it's, it's, that, it's the absence of that substance. And then on the inverse, I mean, the, the musician who's got all the passion and all the intent and all the, substance in the world, but they haven't had, they haven't taken the time to learn certain aspects of the craft and that kind of can, that can fall flat too, or that can get tired really fast, you know? So. Well, yeah, it's sort of like shouting, you know, you don't start your set by shouting and never stop shouting throughout the set because people are like, you know, I like a hill and valley here. I'd like to actually know there's some, some nuance to what we're listening to. What do you do now to reinforce your ability to be available to be within the ecosystem of what you're doing what, what what or is it just second nature now to just know that you need that you're in a zone like what do you do to cultivate your spirituality these days well <clears throat> i meditate daily um with the intention of sort of connecting to source you know for me it's the continual sort of quest to stand more in the seat of self in life and less inside of the turbulent ego-driven identity right so i mean definitely definitely meditating daily um how long do you meditate um generally Anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. And do you, are you of a certain school of meditation, of Vipassana or? It's, it's closest to Vipassana, I guess. It's basically just observing my breath and observing the sensations in my body and trying to keep my consciousness on, grounded in the body and outside of the mind. And letting, letting go of the monkey mind. and. Yeah, yeah, it's about breaking that link to the monkey mind, um, you know. It can be an especially powerful practice when there are challenging, challenging emotions present, um, you know, and there, there hasn't been any shortage of challenging emotions inside of this pandemic for being a musician. <laughs> yeah. 
But, you know, things like anxiety, for instance, really breathing through anxiety and allowing it to be there as a sensation, but taking away the mental resistance and actually realizing how much actual suffering comes inside of the resistance, not the, not right. the themselves, right? What, what happens when you let go of that? Because people fear, they cling and they grasp, right? You know, there's some sorrow of it all. But what, what happens when you allow it to, to arise to be identified as a sensation and to let it go. What, what, what happens to that anxiety? Yeah, well, the way I see it is like, the mind is reactive, um, the self responds. So um, cutting, off, cutting off that link to being in a reactive space towards whatever's going on and then being in a sort of an, an allowing space. Um, uh, it it feels like a kind of alignment happens when when it works. I mean, in that um, it's almost like the the sensation is still there, but there's nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Accepting of of a broader experience of humanity, right? Like I think about myself maybe twenty years ago. Um, so much of my life experience was about keeping the blinders on and trying to regulate my experience of reality by avoiding certain experiences, avoiding certain sensations. Um, you know, I, I used to drink a lot. I used to use the psychedelics you described earlier um, and, and, you know, would behave in such a way which was largely about, you know, driven by craving or aversion avoiding certain things and desiring other things and and it seems like this practice allows sort of just an ability to sort of be inside of what's there and 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 if what's there bears less weight it keeps it keeps me in a space where i can make informed or choices informed in life by different things rather than choosing things based on desire and avoidance i can now be making choices based on self-created intentions for my life or, you know, um, a real sense of purpose or, so it just feels like there's more power inside of being able to encapsulate a larger human experience. Yeah, that sense of purpose, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Very, I have that, I've read it yet. You gotta read it, it's extremely powerful. He, he invented a thing called logotherapy uh, he was a doctor uh, in concentration camps, a Jewish doctor who was supposed to take care of Jewish uh, prisoners um, who hadn't been murdered yet, and they were trying to work them to death. But they would come to him and he would try to help heal them. And he said those who had a meaning, a purpose outside of this place had a much better chance of survival than those who didn't. Mm -hmm. that, that it was really, you know, he, for instance, had been separated from his wife, and what he held on to was that he, he was going to, he was sure she was still alive, and that when he got out of there, he was going to see her. In the end, she's not. She didn't survive. But he needed to hold on to that while he was there. And yet sometimes people have to surrender too. So he had a, a woman who was a patient who was in the bed, and she was dying. She was a young girl, and she was dying. And uh, there was a tree outside her window and she was just looking at the tree 
And he came in and said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm just uh, talking to the tree. And he thought, well, she's now into delusion and she's you know, going to die very soon. Uh, and he said, what is the tree saying to you? And she looked at the tree and she just closed her eyes and opened them and said, I am here. I am here. I am life eternal. Wow. Right? Yeah. You know, and there's a, a Jewish prayer where we say that the trees breathe life into us and we breathe life into the trees. Yeah. And that if one of us stops, the other dies. Yeah. Right? So that interconnectedness, that oneness, that, you know, it's like the difference, you know, when somebody gets you for a session, a live session, or even a studio session, and you know they've got a lot of skill, they're really good, but you can't really connect to them because they're not available. They're really busy. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, everybody got chart number three, let's just go here and just like, have we actually been together yet in this space, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So your students, when, they're fit, when you're finished with them at Mohawk or at Humber, what are you hoping they'll, they'll emerge from the experience with? Huh, great question. Um, obviously on a practical level, um, you know, the fundamental skills needed to be a craftsman right. in the end. Um, but far more importantly, um, my greatest desire is to see them able to be fully present to what's actually possible for them. Um, I feel but we're like, talking about 19, 20, 21 year olds, right? Yeah. But, you know, I want them going out into the world really believing that you know, they have the power to create whatever they want. Um, And I do believe that. I do believe that. Um, you know, I mean, if if you look at the most successful people in the world, in any field, it seems that the common thread is that they had a vision of what they wanted for themselves, and somehow they allowed themselves to actually believe they could have it's, it's in that allowing oneself to see themselves as something greater than they are here and now and, and actually have the belief that they can move towards that. And but you can do that with ego. You can, I, you know, I, I know people who really reach the top of the hill uh, who never resolved their narcissism, who never resolved their, their ego. They just were like, you know what, you know, I've written myself an IOU for 20 million bucks and I'm going to get there. Yeah. And then they get there and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. I was just about to say, it's all about the quality of the journey. Cause I mean, yeah, there are many people who get there and they realize they never resolved, you know, it's like the difference between somebody getting a PhD because they're, they're genuinely impassioned and drawn to the, the, the path of learning and exploration and curiosity. And, and the other person who got a PhD, two PhDs because there's, they've always been secretly hi hiding the unresolved notion that they're stupid. 
and it's they're <laughs> proving that they're not stupid and no matter what they're still carrying that stupidity with them as their dirty little secret right so yeah i mean of course <laughs> but really just just for you know just to to be able to see that we're actually the creator of our own life and and, and we really are creating every moment through through the dialogue that goes on within us and the thoughts we choose to think. Um, you know, I've, the more I get conscious of my own thinking, like I realize how many, how many self-defeating thoughts I have in, in any given day. And it's like, where did these come from? You know, <laughs> in charge of my own mind and say, no, I'm not subscribing to that anymore. You know, that's, um, but I, I, I see a lot of students, young students, and, and it seems like their greatest limitation is just their own self-doubt and, and their own, stories about themselves and their own limitations and you know it kind of makes you wonder about the idea of prodigy like this idea of somebody who gets told that they're a prodigy when they're young did they actually go to the top because they had this prodigious natural skill or did they go to the top because they were able to keep telling themselves that they were special and it was actually that belief in themselves that drove them there it's hard to say maybe both sides of the coin but i'm i'm a firmer believer in creating our own destiny than, than, than genetic predisposition. I think, I think for me in the bigger picture, it's really about, you know, whatever image you hold in mind is, is what you're going to be drawn to over time. Um, Did you always know you were going to play the piano? You know, I kinda, yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I kind of started a bit late. I didn't start lessons till I was almost 13. Hmm. But once I did, it was just like, yeah, this is it. This wow. Is, I don't know if I'll do it for the rest of my life. Oh, I'm yeah? Six now. Well, I, I don't like to be too attached to it as an identity if I can. Right. That's one of the things that can often kill the joy. Um, but... You know, up till now, yeah, it's just been like, this is my life, you know. Um, and if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Right now, I have no idea. Um, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always thought it would maybe be cool to be a psychotherapist or a social worker working with people in there. I, I, I do love talking to my students, especially about their personal issues. I really feel impassioned about the idea of helping people. Well, it's always music therapy and art therapy, you know, it's a real thing. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> yeah. Listen, we got to go, but uh, I'd always been looking forward to this chat. A mutual friend of ours here in town had said, uh, I said, you know, I've never met Adrian, even though he lives somewhere around here. And he said, uh, oh, no, no, you got to, you got to, he'd be perfect for your podcast. You got to talk to him. And he was right. Thank you, man. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Adrian Ferrugia is a jazz pianist. Uh, he is, uh, he plays a very special uh, kind of music. It is honest, it is connected, uh, and it is from his heart. So it's a lovely thing to listen to. Um, I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is not that kind of rabbi. Again, I'll, I'll thank my sponsor, uh, Zaplansky's 
Kaplansky's, uh, I call him Kaplansky because he's Saint Kaplansky, but Kaplansky's.com. If you want to go there, you can check out great deli mustards that he does. He sells you in packages or separately. Uh, it's available in certain select stores. He has a deli at Terminal 3 at Pearson Airport. If you want to go through there on your way to your quarantine, you might as well pick up some great food to go sit in the hotel with, if you're allowed. Uh, and uh, he also has t-shirts for sale. Uh, I've got a couple of them. They're very hilarious and fun. Uh, Kaplansky's is, you know, you don't call, you don't write. Your mother and I are worried sick about you. Why don't you go to Kaplansky's and get you some food? So coleslaw, potato salad, kishka, kanedalach, kugel, greplach, Ashkenazi Jewish food, you know, the kind of stuff all starts with a K and it's all beige. No, no, it's actually much better than that. He has fabulous food. So thank you to Zane for doing that with me. Uh, thank you to you. Uh, and by the way, uh, you can go to uh, my email if you want to say hi, ralphbenmergi at gmail.com. And if you're looking for spiritual direction and, or spiritual companionship, I do that and love to uh, hear from you. Uh, same address, ralphbenmergi at gmail.com, and I'll get in touch with you. Really enjoyed my talk with Adrian Ferugia, and I want to play a, a tune of his on the way out the door, my friends. So uh, if you don't mind, here's one from his Juno-nominated uh, recording, Ricochet, and this song is called Morning Star. La 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 la
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.